I missed that. <laughs> Book of Revelation, chapter 22. I'll turn there as well, see if you can beat me. <laughs> Revelation, chapter 22. We'll read two of the last four verses of this glorious book given to the church that will be the close of God's inspired word to the church. I'll begin reading in verse 18 as it relates to the word given to the church in every age. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things... God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Allow me to pray even now. For the blessing of the holy word of God, Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask that I, myself, might be guarded from the danger of adding or taking away from the word that you have given to us. That what I say would be true and right and just according to your word that you would by your spirit continue not to inspire but reveal and move in us. By this means of grace that you have given to the church in every age, Lord, that you would instruct us in the way of righteousness, that we might be a people first and foremost of the book. Before all else, we are students, faithful students and adherents to your word. And where it tells us to go, we go. What it tells us to do, we do. How it tells us to think and feel, we think. And we feel, for you are our Lord, and we desire to be your servants, all for the sake of your glory and our salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I don't often begin sermons with illustrations, but I have an apt one, I think, this morning. It was the spring of 1993. And the Fowler family got their first computer. If you think computers are expensive now, this was a $3,500 beast of a box, a PC that came with the old CRT monitors. They're still unrivaled in color clarity, might I add. Massive, massive computer. And it came with the latest edition of MS-DOS 6.0. In March 1993, later to be upgraded to 6.1. And when we got that thing home, I began to tinker. And with a $3,500 machine, I began to crash it week after week after week. Because I got, not online, but I looked up in magazines how to express different code actions. And not only that, but written into the MS-DOS program itself were a variety of commands that you could run. The first thing I learned, of course, was how to play Snake. 
And then next was this game where you were a gorilla and you threw bananas. At least I thought you were a gorilla. You know, this is in the days of 8-bit graphics or even worse. But time after time after time, to the chagrin of my father, I crashed the system because I, not knowing exactly what I was doing, began to, through much typing and code entering, add to or take away from those types of commands that were authorized, deleting entire sections that were necessary for the computer to run. And so at least on six or seven occasions, we had to take the computer in to have the operating system reinstalled. We are a long way from MS-DOS 6.0. In fact, most of you young people don't even know what a desktop computer is or a desktop operating system. You only know this, right? And you just... So I went from playing games in which you threw bananas like monkeys to where everybody looks like a monkey, you know, operating their um, software. I don't know which is better. I say all that to get to this point. When God made all things... He instilled into creation a coding, a design, a tapestry of reality, of law, of ethic that is built upon his holy being, his identity, so that we can say that there is nothing in creation when rightly observed and understood that does not reverberate with God's triune nature and identity. And when we live apart from that coding, when we mess with it, when we try to take sections out of it or add to it, it crashes the system. And what we find even around us today as it relates to our culture is not just the resulting living amongst a culture that is crashing. We see huge swaths of the populace that have already crashed. And there is no help for them in a system that does not pay homage to, that is not built upon the coding, the system, the paradigm of God's revealed will. Now, the reason I have taken Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, and chosen to preach on these two verses is not only because there was enough material to fill, as I warned my family this morning, seven pages, which is a lot by my standards, It is because there is nothing more important for the Christian. There is no more school or category of theology for us than what the Bible says or what we believe about the Bible. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism, begin by and large with the doctrine of the Word of God. In fact, our membership vows begin with, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And that the plan of salvation that is communicated in the Bible is it the only true plan. Otherwise, without assenting and agreeing to the Bible as the revealed word and will of God, we have chaos. We must say the same things. And those things must be written down. 
and they ought not be tampered with. This is one of the benefits of hymn books. There's many, but one of the benefits of a hymn book is your session cannot go in and edit the content of this without it being obvious to you. You cannot erase the gospel from this or this easily. Now, this is not an argument against projectors and having a screen up here. Listen, that is a cheaper way forward than buying a lot of these. But all I have to do is edit a file. We are people of a book that has been written, laid down, and given to the church in every age so that we might get to heaven and glorify God and know the gospel and be of use to our neighbors. And so this principle, this notion of an inspired and infallible, a sufficient word of God is everything to the Christian life. And that is why John makes the point here at the end of the book of Revelation that what has been written, not only by John as he has eaten the word, but all of the word heretofore at the book, at the time of the close of canon, when John pins these last words, that is when the canon was established. Not by counsels of men, nor by John himself, but by the authoritative speech of God received by John. All right, two points that I want to make as it relates to these two paths, these two verses. Number one, don't tamper with revelation. Don't tamper with it. And then the second, inspiration and imprecations. An imprecation is just an audible spoken judgment. So firstly, don't tamper with revelation. And then second, inspiration and imprecations. Now, Beneath this first heading of don't tamper with revelation is this idea upon which the whole of Christian life is grounded, and that is the revelation of God is sufficient as it is. You don't need to add to it. You ought not take away from it. How it has been given to you, the 66 books of the Bible, if you need to know what the Reformed Church believes on this, open the back of your hymnal psalter and look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. That's a great place to start. But this sermon is not a sermon on the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So go and look at that later this afternoon. As it relates to Scripture's sufficiency, that is that it's enough, it is a complete diet for your life. 2 Timothy 3 speaks of the breathed-out nature of the Word of God. And because it is God-breathed, as he says in chapter 3, It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All we need is the word of God. Now, that is not all we have been given by God, but it is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. It can be trusted because it is not the words of men. They are the words of God. Then 2 Peter So that you might say, and many do, textual critics, these are not the words of God, they're just the words of right now. It's white men, which is ironic. Do they not know where the Bible was written and by whom? I always think that's ironic. (laughs) 
And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here we go. Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means you don't get to go home and say, I think this is my truth. When God says X, he really means something else. For, and this is the reason why you don't get to come up with your own private interpretations. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You are not the author. He is the author. And because he is the author, he gets to tell you what it means. And because the word of God comes from God, it is holy, it is sufficient, It is what we need for life and godliness. In fact, the greatest passage on the sufficiency of God's word comes from Psalm 19. And just two verses, though it does continue, we read the law of the Lord is perfect. When something is perfect, what ought you not do to it? Cover that song, right? You know the cover band? I think we can do it better than the original. No, most often you cannot. Especially when you just sort of distort it into some other genre of music altogether. The law of the Lord is perfect. And because it is perfect, it refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Because of that, they make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. And all of them are righteous. But this is how sinful men receive the word of God. In the same way that Eve and her husband received it. Instead of looking at the word of God and delighting in it, they looked at the words of Satan, the distortion of it, and they saw, she saw in particular, that it was good. And then Adam said, okay, I'll take that too. And from that first sin is the creeping doubt or the inclination of the human heart not to say, God hath said it, and that settles it, but did he really say that? Did he? Are you sure about that? And so when we go to the scriptures and we endeavor to interpret it, we must understand, even pastors, especially pastors, That the inclination of the sinful human heart is to either add to or take away from those passages that especially, especially do damage to the pride of the human heart. And the self-reliance that is often woven within us because of our sin. But revelation is sufficient and as such it is essential to get right because it is perfect We ought to endeavor to know it and to communicate it as perfectly as possible. Now, we are not alone in this. And your pastor has made mistakes from the pulpit. Now, before you endeavor to drive me out of town, which, fine. I was in Shelby yesterday. It was a beautiful place. Maybe I'll just go to Shelby. (laughs) Kidding. As long as you have a long enough apology tour, you can get in all kinds of trouble, apparently, as a pastor. And then you just go to another church. Not in the OPC, apparently. So, we must get it right. 
Now, the one who is sent to the church in order to do this is the Holy Spirit. Christ says, I will send one who is like me to help you, and he will be your teacher. And so when the word of God is proclaimed on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and when you sit there and you listen, God uses the means of teaching and preaching, but without the Spirit, there is no communication of grace. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit what the word of God is, and ultimately the glory, the beauty, the accuracy of God's word is made manifest to us by the Spirit. And whenever we endeavor to make a choice in our lives, a decision here or there, what should I do? Where do we go first? To the word of God. What is good according to the only one who is good? Now, John's desire in this moment, in the book of Revelation, is to not judge the works of God merely by what they see on earth. The sufferings, the misery, the persecution, the death, the power of Nero and the Roman Empire, the aggravations of the pagan Jews who had rejected the Messiah and they're working together like the woman riding the beast. And all of these terrifying circumstances, God is telling his people, their day is coming, Christ is on the throne. And it is easy for Christians, people, and Christians are not immune to this, to judge by feeble sense rather than by the revealed word of God. Right now it seems that we are witnessing the death of an empire, if you want to call it that. You probably should. And what I mean by that is just recently, in the great house of this nation that stands in some fashion as the seat of one form of government, between two American flags is the pride flag. Have you seen this? Does that surprise you? It should not surprise you. It is disgusting. It is an aberration of the word of God. But for us, we understand that this trend has been a long time in the making. In fact, all nations must pay homage to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And many millennia ago, whenever kings of Israel were coronated, it was their sovereign, sober responsibility to take the five books of the law and to write a commentary on it. So that they might know it and know how to apply it. As I was learning to code in the language established by the programmers on the back end of all these computer functions, I had to not create a new kind of code. I had to adjust to the kind of coding that that computer functioned on. What we have often done and what men often endeavor to do is to tamper with the scriptures by asking the question, did God really say? And when we move away from that, what we end up with is an ethic, is a priority, is a flag 
that is raised not in support of the right order that God has established, but the disorder of the broken and fallen desires of the human heart. Now, in a moment, we'll get to those curses in particular. But this call, this warning is not new in Scripture. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy chapter 12, when the law was first given, this is what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 4, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Or Deuteronomy 12, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take, it away, take away from it. In fact, God in Deuteronomy 12 warns us what the result of disobedience to the law of God is. It's not training up your child. It's murdering your children. It is turning generations against one another. It is turning a population against one another. It is turning the hearts of fathers against sons, mothers against daughters, husbands against wives, children against... It is discord. It is chaos. There is no peace. When the fruit of the enlightenment has reached its full flowering... What are you left with? Every man does what is right in their own eyes. It is the book of Judges. It is the day after you eat the forbidden fruit. You think God is dead. Let us make a law unto ourselves. We are free. But only, only, only in a world in which there is no good God who has designed bright things for those who live according to his word, which is the world in which we lived. And so here, as John writes his last words, he is saying, what is closed cannot be opened up. We speak of this as the rule for faith and practice. The sort of fancy word for rule, you know this word, is canon. The canon of Scripture is comprised of the 66 books beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation. These are the books that belong to Scripture. In fact, if you want a list of those books, I would imagine most of you have those types of Bibles that have the 66 books. And if you open up the Westminster Confession of Faith, there they are listed. You'll find them in the beginning even of your Bible. You should know where they are. You should know what they say. Now, why is that? Because it is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Now, what it does not mean is that God does not continue to speak. What he is done doing is inspiring holy men chosen by God to write those things concerning Christ, his miracles, his power, his salvation. But even through the preaching of the word of God, God moves in the hearts of men to faith and repentance. And so Paul commends the Thessalonians that they received the preaching of the word of God, not as the words of men, but as the words of God himself. But it was not novel. It was not new. I don't come up here and invent things by God's grace. 
I certainly do not intend to or endeavor to, but to preach that which is once and for all laid down to the saints. Now, I think you can understand the utility of that. What if you have a church that is filled with people who come to church on Sunday and say, well, this is what I believe. Have you ever gone to any evangelical Bible study? And every single comment that is ever made in every evangelical Bible study is always prefaced with this, well, this is what I think. And I say to them, I don't care what you think. What does the Bible say? Now, I understand their intention. I, of course, would not say that in that particular context. I'm being a bit saucy. But the fact of the matter is this. What you think has very little to do with what God has said, and it has nothing to do if what you think is contrary to what God has said. And we live in an age now that as soon as someone says, here's my truth, we are told not to compare it with Scripture, but to do what? Rejoice just in the fact that they've opened their mouths. Oh, tell me about your truth, please. I want to hear it. Can you tell me? Can you tell me? And what, have, what has happened? We have all of these people that have erected these idols in their own hearts, first of all. And then they have established a system whereby they suppress and exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they say, here is the kingdom I am building for myself. But much like children in the beach who are endeavoring to build competing sandcastles but only have three buckets, there will be what? Infighting. Not only about the tools that they are given, who gets what bucket at what time, but also whose castle is better. But then the sea comes, and all of those houses that are built upon the sand are washed away. It did not matter. What is closed cannot be opened or tampered with. Now, let me describe what I mean by tampering. I think there are two large categories as it relates to tampering with the word of God that leads to here adding to or taking away. There is the kind of intentional and deconstructive efforts to do away with the parts of God's word that interfere with the kinds of lives we want to lead. Sometimes those intentions are systematic. We get together with all of our friends and we establish a, a textual criticism camp. When we go through the Bible like the Jesus Seminar, look it up, and you get a group of wise biblical scholars who with their marbles vote on the things that Jesus could or could not have said or didn't or did not do. And based upon what standard? Here it is. Their own sexual immorality. Their own large-scale immorality, what they endeavor to do, what they endeavor to believe, and they take the word of God and they submit it to their evil desires. And so, as it relates to the incarnation, no, 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 no. God did not become man. And in fact, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just swooned for a time. Like a kid, right? On a food sugar hangover. Just give him some peanut butter. Right? And then his resurrection was not coming to life. He just was finally caught up on sleep. I'm talking about men like Bart Ehrman. In Chapel Hill University. Many men like this and women to be sure. 
They intentionally deconstruct. They intentionally endeavor to add or take away from the word of God in in order to relieve themselves of the burden of God's truth upon their lives. They have a purpose. They deny who Jesus the Christ is. They reject the sovereignty of God over all creation. And now, what is very much in vogue, even in Reformed churches, is they deny the reality of six-day creation as a fundamental doctrine for life and for law. You try to live a life that is devoid of the reality of six-day creation. You undermine the lordship of Christ over everything. Whether it is a biblical anthropology, how we are to organize the days of our week, all of it crumbles under the weight of theistic evolution. Then there are unintentional tamperings with Scripture. Because even though we may go sit in these evangelical church Bible studies and we say, I think most of those people, what are they actually saying? It seems as though Paul is saying which is, I guess, a more seminary-approved way of saying it. But oftentimes, if we are not faithful students of the Word, we may say, it seems as though what Paul is saying is, it's actually okay for women to be officers in the church, which is where we're living right now. And I say unintentional because oftentimes the errors that we practice are the result of a lack of knowledge of the word of God. Now, what is the remedy for that? To open the word of God and to read it. Let scripture interpret scripture. Oftentimes, those unintentional errors can grow into something more nefarious, more dangerous. Or sometimes when you talk to a child about the doctrine of the Trinity, it is easy to slip from orthodoxy to heresy. You know what I'm talking about. Because all of us assess what is true of God by the things we see even in creation. And so we must be first people of the word. Are you following? And so those who endeavor, even in this day and age, to bring exegesis under the approved narratives of science or politic or social norms often also make unintentional, unforced errors. Now, some errors are damnable. Some are just dangerous. Some errors we've not even learned to avoid yet. I remember when I was studying for my licensure exam, desiring to be a minister in the OPC, there were a series of hot topic questions And half of those I thought, I've never heard of this problem. Now let me encourage you to do something. Don't go looking for problems. (laughs) One of the things we do very well in the historic reformed expression of Christianity is fight about little elements of doctrine. And there are some elements of doctrine that when we get them wrong, they send us to hell. Look at the Athanasian Creed. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you have a problem. And in some sense, John is speaking not of theological categories, but primarily your disposition 
of where these arguments are settled. The priority, the principle of the sufficiency and the completion of God's word. Because if you believe that there are sources that are as authoritative as, or if there are problems with and therefore errors in the word of God, you will not believe aright, live aright, and you will not confess what is necessary for salvation. And that brings me to my second point, inspiration and imprecations. Let's move somewhat quickly. John is writing of the danger of extra-biblical sources and going through and marking out passages in your Bible. He's talking about the Pope, and he's talking about Thomas Jefferson. Now, what do I mean by the Pope? The magisterium is that corpus of teaching that the Roman Catholics hold to that elevates tradition and the decrees of the Roman Church not to be helpful guides of doctrine but to be equal in authority with the word of God. That is exactly what John is talking about. But it is not just the Roman Catholics. It is the Mormons. It is the Muslims. It is the Eastern Orthodox. All of these cults and, yes, even those who I would count in some fashion, to be true members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, however with great error, need to decide for themselves what the principal source of their authority is. The Book of Mormon is the gift of the devil in order to lead men astray. The revelations of Muhammad are the interworkings of satanic forces to lead billions astray. The Jehovah's Witness that deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of these things, John says, if you add to this word that is now closed, you invite the seven plagues that he spoke of earlier in this book. Now we can talk more about the the workings of that in a moment in Sunday school. But what we need to see is that tampering with the word of God is not like editing certain classic works like we often do today. That's a problem. But there is nothing as problematic as saying, did God really say this? In fact, I think he meant to say this and maybe even this in addition to that. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas One of these gospels that many would consider to be as legitimate a historical document as the four gospels that we have that relays the marriage of Christ to Mary. Not his mother, of course. The other Mary. Where is this recorded? It is not in the authoritative word of God. What John is speaking of is that at the end of the book of Revelation is the ceasing of God's inspired revelation. And to add to it is to act more like Satan than a saint. And so we must be very careful, especially when someone says, I have a special word from the Lord. Years ago, my dad was in his office and there was a woman coming in, a pastor, who confessed to him 
I no longer love my husband, and the Lord is telling me to get a divorce. And he said, well, there's two problems here. Number one, you stopped listening to God a long time ago because you became a pastor. The second problem is God would never tell you to get a divorce. These things are not part of his word. And so how did she excuse it? The same way that many do. They add to the word of God. And so this is a condemnation against any who would supplement that which is already perfect. But then there's also the taking away. The adding of the plagues like we see in Egypt or the plagues described here in the book of Revelation to those who add and then the taking away. If one takes away from the word of God, I mentioned Thomas Jefferson. He was the one who went through his Bible and marked out certain passages And always these efforts are explained how? Intellectually. But how are those decisions always ever met or reached? Emotionally. I'm in rebellion against God. I don't like what the Bible says about this particular passage. And so as it relates to taking away, this removal or tampering by removal results... And the great condemnation of not having one's name written in the book of life. Now, what does that mean? That those who take away from the word of God show themselves to be not members of the body of Christ. Not just, this is not what Christians do. But what is at the very heart of the removal of certain sections of Scripture? Who is the one that is always taken first? Christ and his lordship over your life. In fact, this is why people remove in the first place. It's the Romans 1 problem. In an effort to suppress and exchange the truth of God for a lie, knowing that there is a God who made you, who is angry with you, you will do everything in your power to alter revelation, to get out from underneath the guilt and responsibility that is felt in your own corrupt soul, still made by God for his glory. And where they aim their guns first, and even we at times, is the call of God to be faithful disciples. And it begins where? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All Christian discipleship begins in Christ who is the way. You must first get through the door to enter into discipleship. But what need is there for salvation? If I can eliminate sin with some literary trickery or some philosophical theological trickery, what need have I for a savior if I'm sinless? And in fact, not only am I sinless, but my sin is not, is not wicked. It is in fact virtuous. And I have a whole month to tell me I'm virtuous. Everybody around me tells me I'm virtuous. And it's not just a month. We establish lives, relationships, friendships, theological schools, denominations, societal organizations all to do what? To celebrate rebellion. And dear saints, we must understand the inclination of every human heart 
is to exchange one law for another. And John is saying, we have what is right. Do not abandon it. Do not reject it. Do not tamper with it. Receive it. So how do we know what God has then said? Upon the evidence of faithful witnesses. As it relates to the accuracy of scripture that is given to us, first in the original languages of Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic, we have thousands of extant manuscripts whereby God's speech given to man is recorded. And not only that, but the confession says we have the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our hearts that the word of God is the word of God. And if the requirement is on the faithful witness of two or more, we have more than enough support. Not only that, but one of the ways we know what God has said is through the rejection of known, proven false witnesses that we find in the epistles. In fact, much of what is written in the epistles is a warning against those false teachers. Avoid them. Upon the promise that God would preserve his glorious word through his mighty providence. And we see this in countless scriptures that God supernaturally, so to speak, as he providentially rules, he upholds his word. So that the church in 500 years will have the true speech of God whereby they might know how to be saved and grow in righteousness. And upon the proof of what it does when we open and read it. What I mean by that is this. Reformation OPC has a lot of Bibles in here. Just because there are Bibles in the pew does not make Reformation orthodox. We could build the church out of Bibles. And it wouldn't make a hill of beans difference if we did not open those Bibles and seek to understand them through the power of the Holy Spirit as he is unleashed through the teaching and preaching of it. If we wish to be orthodox, we must not only say that what the world says is not true, we must understand why it is untrue and what is in fact true. Otherwise what? We have no share in the kingdom. Dear saints, may we be people of the book. Let us pray. Lord.